Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 19. Uh, Beethoven guy had it going on, I tell you. He could really come up with it. Ooh. Psalm 19. Now, if you have uh, walked off the street, and this is the first time that you ever have heard anything about the Lord or looked into the Bible, and this is the only sermon that you hear, uh, and then you never come back, you might scratch your head and go, what, what was going on there? Okay, but, but understand this is part of the series through Psalm 19. And it begins last week with an understanding that God reveals himself and his glory in the created order. And as you remember, uh, you just have to be stupid not to see it. Okay. Now, uh, others are going, well, I'm not stupid, I don't see it. Well, I'm allowed my own opinion, okay? Uh, and, and, and that also comes from, from many others, but still, that's, that's the base upon which we go, and that was really the first six verses of Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory. This is just what we sang. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. It goes everywhere. That's what they're saying. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their utterances to the end of the earth. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This gives us the base upon which the psalmist, David, is going to go to the next item to demonstrate the authority of God and his glory and his reality. And that takes us to our passage for this morning. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read this portion of the psalm. Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. Give us understanding of your word that we might know who you are and what you call us to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And I'll be reading verses 7 through the end of the chapter. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, much, yes more than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them the, thy servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. As I said, this is part of, of a series, and these pieces all will fit together uh, once we come out at the other end. So keep that in mind as we look at this today. Now this, I, I will stand up and say, and I, I would assume you would uh, not invite me back next Sunday if, if I believe differently, this is the word of God. 
Okay, it is inspired, it is without error in original form. Uh, it is for us today, and if he does not return in 2,000 years, it will be the same power and authority and weight for those who are here 2,000 years from now. Why is it so important to us? Why does this carry so much weight in our lives? Why is it that we as believers come here and, and, and we, we sit and we study and we, and we dig into his word? Um, I think it was uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, Henry Emerson Fosdick was part of the modernist uh, um, fundamentalist controversy back in the late 20s between Presbyterians and, 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 and uh, within the Presbyterian church. And he wrote... He wrote this article, and, and part of it, I'm sorry to I'll give you a little bit more of the story. He and Gresham Machen would write articles, and the New York Times would print them. Okay, so that tells you the scope of how this controversy went back and forth. Machen would write one, Fosdick would write one. Machen would write one, Fosdick, and they would go back and forth like that. Uh, and, and Fosdick, um, he, he writes a good hymn, what is it, God of... Uh, uh, God of grace and God of glory. That's Fosdick hymn, okay? Uh, generally, it, it's okay. Uh, I mean, I really, I do like it. I don't like his theology because what happened was Fosdick said, and this gets, gets to the heart of this, he said, who wants to sit there for an hour and have the Bible explained to them? Now, see, he was saying that the Bible did not have authority, did not have power in it. I mean, this is, is the, we look at this as the Word of God. And Machen was scratching his head and, and pulling out whatever hair he had left and, and said, come on, this is what we do, because Machen would spend an hour in exposition of the Word. And Fosdick was, I mean, people flocked to him. He was telling stories and touching their heart, but he did not think the Word of God had the power to change lives. I mean, this is the sword. This is the only offensive weapon the church has. If you remember, uh, the armor of God, it is all defensive except for the Word of God. And we understand that nothing can stop the movement, forward movement of the church. Okay? The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Okay? They cannot stand. The gates of hell and, and no, other, no other entity, created entity, can stand against the forward movement of the church. Why? Because this is God's will. This is God's filling us with His power. And so when we look at the Word of God and we say, well, why is it so important? It's because this is how we understand God. Why do we pay such close attention to the context of the Scripture? Why do I sometimes go off on a tangent about what the Greek or the Hebrew says? And you go, well, I, Rand, that's all Greek to me. And I was like, yeah, but it's so important. I mean, the endings on some of those words mean so much. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. Does that mean he's, I'm going to die and that's, that's the end of my life? No, the ending on the word means it is finished. And what that ending means is it is finished now, but the results continue forever. The results of Christ's death on the cross do not end when he dies, but those results continue on for all eternity. That just comes from the Greek language. He didn't have to say it. All he had to do was put the right ending on it. Okay? So when we look at things like that, they are very important. So this is why, to some degree, we are so focused on, the, on understanding Scripture. It is the Word of God. And by it, God and the truth about God is known to us. God does not give each of us our own little individual revelation. He does not come straight, Randy, this is my word only for you. Okay? 
And I want you to understand Jesus in this way. Then he doesn't go over here to Bo and say, Bo, I want you, this is my word for you, I want you to understand Jesus in this way. He doesn't do that. He says, my church, I want you to understand Jesus in this way. This is how you understand my will, who I am, what I have for you to do. He wants us to live according to the things of Christ, and he provides us the way to understand how to live according to the things of Christ. It's in his word. And in his word, we find absolutes. Absolutes. Now, in the scientific world, you know, many in this community are, are, are tied into the scientific world, the mathematic world, the engineering world, and, and frankly, those things, those things are foreign to me. Um, my mind just doesn't work that way, okay? It does not. I don't look at things, and, 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 and you know, math is, is just kind of a blur to me. Um, but there are absolutes in the scientific world. If you put too much weight on a bridge, what happens? The bridge collapses. It's an absolute, okay? Not every bridge, can, not, not any bridge, can hold an infinite amount of weight. There is an absolute breaking point, or whatever you call that in, in the world, some sort of failure rate uh, or place where it just breaks, okay? There's gravity in the world, okay? That's, a, that's an absolute, Okay, I think the only way you get past gravity is go in that plane that what they call it, the vomit comet, and you go up like this, and for 15 seconds you float around. Okay, uh, and then when you come back down, I guess you're sick. I don't know. Um, but science, biology, botany, mathematics—they all function with absolutes. Two and two is four. It doesn't matter what story you have. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter whether it's the new math or the old math. Two and two are four. That's an absolute. An absolute. Now, we are pretty straightforward in our application of those kinds of absolutes, right? That's how we function. Except when we turn to the moral world or the spiritual world. Then people think we can live without any absolutes, that we can't be bound by moral or spiritual absolutes. It's almost as if we think we can live in two different worlds. Over here we have the physical world and we are bound by absolutes. Over here in the moral world I can pick and choose because I'm not bound by any absolutes. I can self-determine, I can self-define, I can uh, pick and choose the way that it fits me. Okay, The way that it fits me. And somehow, I can do this over here, and everybody else can do it over here as well, and we can still live within harmony of all parties involved. Uh, okay, let's, let's throw a monkey wrench in that and say, um, what if my moral world and your moral, moral world, as they are self-defined, what if they come in conflict? And we've seen this this week. Okay, and I'm going to use this just as an illustration. I might enjoy satire as it's demonstrated in comics and things like that. If you've ever read uh, websites like The Onion, The Onion, anybody know what The Onion is? It's all sat satire, okay, and it can be very funny unless they're picking on you, and then it might not be that funny, okay? There were uh, there's a newspaper in France, as most of you know, and they satirized the Prophet Muhammad. And those guys said, that is bad. And they went in and killed a bunch of people within that newspaper. Okay? 
Um, so what if your worldview and your moral absolutes say it's okay to go and kill people who make fun of what I believe? And my worldview says, hey, you have to let people express themselves freely. Uh, we're in conflict here. Let me give you a little bit from that particular uh, uh, event and, and some thoughts on that by a uh, leading Muslim scholar. He says, Muslim, Muslims do not believe in the concept of freedom of expression. As their speech and actions are determined by divine revelation and not based upon people's desire. Although Muslims may not agree about the idea of freedom of expression, even non-Muslims who espouse it say it comes with responsibility. You cannot go into the movie theater and yell fire. Okay, we all understand that. Why? Because people will respond and people will act and there'll be a stampede. That's not quite what he's talking about, though. In an increasingly unstable and insecure world, the potential consequences of insulting the messenger Muhammad are known to Muslims and non-Muslims alike. Consequences. Now, if you speed and drive recklessly, what are the consequences? You're going to crash, maybe. Okay. And if you crash, what are we going to say to you? That's what you get for driving like that, okay? That's what you get. If you live a sexually promiscuous life and you come home with a disease, what are we going to say? That's what you get, okay? Those are natural consequences of the created order of the world. Natural consequences. That's not the consequences that he's referencing here. He's referencing if you go out and do this, the consequences are I'm going to come and kill you. That's not the same type of consequences, Okay, Muslims consider the honor of the Prophet Muhammad to be dearer to them than that of their parents or even themselves. To defend it is considered to be an obligation upon them. The strict punishment, if found guilty of this crime, that would be the, the uh, uh, blasphemy of Muhammad, under Sharia is capital punishment. If I say something and, sorry, you're in the front row, Bo doesn't like it, and he kills me, that's not a natural consequence. But that's what this guy is saying. If you go, I, I tell you, if you go out and say this, I'm going to kill you. And when he does it, he believes he's right. Because that's the moral construct that he has created in his world and in that faith. Now let me go on and finish his quote. However, because the honor of the prophet is something which all Muslims want to defend, many will take the law into their own hands. So why in this case, I love this, why in this case did the French government allow this magazine to continue to provoke Muslims, thereby placing the sanctity of its citizens at risk? We told you what we were going to do if you continue to do this, so why go and do it? Why should you be surprised that we acted in the way that we told you we were going to act? Okay. This quote represents a belief system with moral absolutes. They're very different, I assume, than the moral absolutes we have in this room but they have constructed them for themselves apart from the moral absolutes of God's word. So just as clearly as the Bible recognizes and reveals that there is order in the world, as categorized either the scientific world or the physical world, it reveals that there is a moral order and moral absolutes that should be followed. And there are consequences when you don't follow those. Okay, and they're the consequences that come naturally. They're not the consequences that I bring upon you because I don't feel you follow my moral teachings and ethic. 
It is the function of the created world that bring these consequences. It doesn't matter what your moral belief is. It doesn't matter what you think is right, right for you. There are consequences to these things. Okay? We go up on the roof. If you go up on the roof and you say in a very loud proclamation, gravity has no bearing upon my life. I am free from the laws of gravity and you jump off the roof. When you break something, because you, you're going to hit the ground, we're going to look at you with, well, I, I'm not going to have that much pity in my heart or compassion. I'm going to say stupid head. That's what you get. Didn't you know there was gravity? And you say, but I said it had no bearing upon me. No, it doesn't work that way. If I want to go out and involve myself in certain activities, there are natural consequences. Like I said before, if I want to be promiscuous, I should be not surprised when I come home with a disease. If I want to go out and be an IV drug user, I should not be surprised I come home with hepatitis C or some other disease. Those are consequences of my actions. Okay? Natural results, natural consequences for violating the absolutes that the Lord puts in place. Now, we saw last week that the Lord reveals his glory and his reality in, in the created order around us. We find that God has established moral absolutes, spiritual principles, and he reveals them to us in the Bible. God makes these things known through human authors who wrote down exactly what God wanted to be written down. But the question arises, well, how do we know the Bible is true? Now, we certainly do not have enough time to go into all the proofs and everything. I'll give you the short version of a couple of them. Okay, the short version of a couple of them. How do we know the Bible is true? Well, the first one is a little bit subjective. If you believe, if you obey, if you live in the way that the Bible tells you to, you will experience the blessing and the power of the Lord. You will experience forgiveness. You will experience peace. You will experience joy. Everything Scripture says you will indicate by patterning your life off of what it says. These are the realities. So in a, to some extent, our experience demonstrates the validity and reality and authority of God's Word. But that's not perfect because uh, I certainly don't live it perfectly. So sometimes it, you know, I'm better sometimes than others. But if we are obedient and do what it says, it gives an indication of God's power and His love and His care for us. So secondly, even we find in, in uh, the world, uh, in the physical world, in the scientific world, there are evidences that give confirmation to the validity of what Scripture says. The Bible gives us an understanding of the world. The Bible is not a scientific document. It is a theological document. Okay? It talks about history it talks about personalities it talks about the created world it gives us hints into different things but it is a theological document at its heart so remember that remember that but the bible does affirm certain things like the first law of thermodynamics just i'm just doing some basic things here and and uh i'm just going to quote about the, the first law of thermodynamics it's the law of the conservation of energy and it states the total energy of an isolated system is constant. Energy can be transferred from one form to another, but cannot be created or destroyed. Uh, I hope one of you scientists will come and correct me if I'm wrong with that, but that's, that's what I pulled out. 
Science knows that mass and energy are fixed. There's no more mass. There's no more energy can come into existence nor go out of existence. It simply changes its form. So this is to say that everything was created and it remains the same. And it remains the same. Isaiah chapter 40, Behold, he who has created these things, um, he calls them all by name by the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power, not one of them fails. Nehemiah says, Thou hast made heaven and the earth and all things therein, the seas and all things therein, you preserve them all. Now you might go, Ran, that didn't really sound like it. I didn't hear the words first law of thermodynamics okay, in there. But you heard the general principles that apply. We read Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, Is there anything of which it may be said? See, this is new. It has already been from of old. The Bible also affirms the second law of thermodynamics, which is the law of increasing disorder or increased entropy. I love this one. Because um, it's clear. Look, look at the person next to you. Look at the person over here. Tomorrow they'll be older, okay? And, and what happens to our bodies? We decrease. And I always love this guy. We put you out in the backyard and leave you there for 40 years in a lawn chair, and what happens? You will deteriorate, okay? The worms will come. They will eat you. Pretty soon you'll, you'll have, you'll what? You'll have uh, gone down, okay? Your, your, your stuff will still be around in some form, but you have decreased, um, um, you, it, your, your entropy has increased. How about that? Okay. Nothing comes into existence, nothing goes out, but everything continues its downward direction towards continuous disorder. Put four toddlers in a room, and what do you get? <laughs> continuous disorder. Okay. Uh, while quantity remains the same, that's the first law, the quality of matter energy deteriorates gradually over time. Okay. And, and the Bible talks about this. In the process of usable energy, it's converted into unusable. Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans. The whole creation feels the impact of its fallenness. The whole creation is personified in Romans 8 as experiencing its own disintegration because of the sin that is in the world. It, it's corrupt. It suffers pain. Okay? If you look at the astronomy, um, we, we know here that there are billions and billions and billions of stars. But in the old days, uh, the father of trigonometry, uh, Hipparchus, said there were 1,022 stars. Ptolemy, in his great wisdom, corrected him and said, no, there are 1,056 stars. And then Kepler came along and corrected them both and said, no, there's 1,055. Okay. Jeremiah, 2,000 years ago, comments on the vastness of the universe the host of heaven can't be counted. The stars are like the sand of the sea. There are hundreds of billions of stars as far as we can tell. Now, I know this is going to come as a shock to many of you, but the earth is not flat. Okay? Uh, but, and this was known long ago. Long ago. Job says, the Lord hangs the earth on nothing. He says, the earth is turned like the clay to the seal. Now, this would uh, reference to you put wet clay down and you take a seal that is embossed and turn it over like that. And when you're done, you have the embossment on this wet clay. That's what he's referring to. So it says it's like it hangs on nothing, its own axis there. Job 26, he calls the earth a circle, a globe. So it was known to be a sphere. 
and long ago because Job is the oldest book of the New Test of the Old Testament. Okay. Now remember when people used to get sick and the doctor would come with his knives and say, you've got the bad humors and we're going to bleed them out? Uh, Leviticus says life of the flesh is in the blood. So it was known long before. You can't, it's bad to bleed somebody out. That's bad. So those are kind of practical things. We can look at the Bible's prophecies an example. The Bible predicted a man named Cyrus would release the Jews from captivity and build Jerusalem again. That was 150 years before it happened. Now I can give you a long list of the prophecies like that that we see fulfilled. Ezekiel 26 talks about the destruction of the city Tyre. Tyre was a seacoast and said, you know, it's all going to be thrown out into the sea and men will dry their fishing nets on it because Tyre was here on the coast and they had an island fortress out here that when things got bad, the whole city would run out to the island fortress and there was no way to get there. And along comes Alexander the Great, and he has no ships, so those people just simply go out there and figure Alexander can never get to us. So what does he do? He tears down the city, throws it into the water, builds a causeway out to the island, and destroys them. And what did they do after that with the causeway? They dried their fishing nets on it, just like Ezekiel said. In Nahum, it talks about the destruction of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, at the time of writing of Nahum, was an immense city. It had a 150-foot inner wall that was 50 feet thick. Now, imagine this. This is a huge fortification. It was seven miles in circumference. It had a double moat outside. There were an inner wall, 2,000 feet from the outer wall, and it was just as big as the outer wall. You had chariot races on top of the wall. It was so wide. It was incredible fortification, yet the prophet said it would be destroyed. Oh, gee, guess what happened to Nineveh? It was destroyed, just like Nahum had said. So no, no matter how you look at the Bible, whether you're going to look at it, here are some scientific things, where you're going to look at the prophecies, how uh, the Lord works. You can look at the miracles of Christ. We didn't even get into to those types of things. These are inexplicable outside of God's actions in the world. But most notably, if we're going to talk about the authority of the world, we have to understand the Bible in its whole is about Christ. It is about His coming, about His power, about why He had to come in the way that He came and what that means for all eternity. The Old Testament prepares for His coming. The New Testament records His coming and promises that he will return. Now, none of this goes into the documents and the archaeological stuff and all of that that show us the wonderful validity of the Word of God. And those are just from human aspects and human things. Now, all of this is simply an introduction to what we're going to do. Remember, if you walked in today and this is all that you hear, you might scratch your head and go, oh, what did I get from this? This sets us up for all of these things that come, and I'm going to give you just a quick overview here of, of some of these things, the five A's. Frankly, I'm not good on alliteration. Is this alliteration when they're all A's or something? Okay, I'm not good with that, so I stole them from somebody else, okay? The five A's, and then I filled in underneath it. Number one, God's Word is authoritative. As we look at Psalm 19, 
Look at what David says, the nouns he uses, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, judgments, fear. This is not shaking in my boots fear. This is awesome fear of God and his power and of holiness that is put before me. Each of these words implies authority. God doesn't come to us and say, you know, Rand, let me put a bug in your ear that maybe you want to obey this word because I think it would be good for you. I think your life would be better. You could find happiness and fulfillment if you just, if you just did what I ask you to do. It's not the way the Lord comes across to us. He doesn't give us ten hints on how to be happy. He doesn't give us the ten suggestions. Remember Ted Koppel said, these aren't ten suggestions, these are ten commandments that he gives us. Okay? God speaks and we'd better listen. We live in a culture that has, has issues with authority sometimes. We don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to conform my life to, to the rules of somebody else. I, I, I like to, to live and do it according to my rules. Sometimes we see a lack of respect for authority. We want to be a law unto ourselves. Sometimes we see a willingness to blame authority. That's well, authority's fault, right? I often hear Christians say, well, I don't have to be obedient because we're not under the law anymore, right? This is grace. Ooh, that's bad. Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but what? To fulfill the law and the prophets. All Ten Commandments, except the one about the Sabbath, are repeated and accompanied by some awfully scary threats for not following them in the New Testament. Just give me, I'll give you an example quick. Matthew chapter 7, to those who do not do the will of the Father, Jesus will say, what? Depart from me, I never knew you. Do the will of the Father. If you don't do the will of the Father, what's Christ going to say? Galatians chapter 5, those who do the works of the flesh, and he gives us one of those uh, lists of the works of the flesh. He says what? Those people do not inherit the kingdom of God. If we defy God's authority found in his word, we do so at our own peril. So authority. Next one, God's word is abundantly adequate. Abundantly adequate. Well, if you look at the word in the language, it's perfect. And if you dig into the word and do all kinds of word study on it, what you find is that word means perfect. And that's what it means, perfect. Restoring the soul. As Paul says, Scripture will make the man of God perfect for every good work. The word makes, us, makes wise the simple. Okay, the word simple shows us that to receive God's wisdom, we have to humble ourselves. We can't be proud and go to God like, I deserve this. No, this is his gift to us. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It is better than fine gold uh, or fine, better than honey. In keeping it, there is great reward. We ought to desire God's word more than money, more than life itself. And God's word is abundantly adequate. It is perfect to meet every need of our hurting hearts. Number three, God's word is accurate. And, and we'll look at, at these kind of words uh, in the next couple weeks. Perfect, that means complete, having integrity. Sure, a solid foundation. Right, mapping out the right course. These are the root meanings of these words. Pure, has no unwholesome elements within it. Clean, free from impurity. True, totally dependable. This is the word of God. It is accurate. There, if there is a seemingly, a seemingly an error in God's word, it's more due to our limited knowledge. Okay? 
the seminary professor challenged the student to go find every contradiction he could find in, in the Word and come back in the morning and show him. He said this is the best after. He, he was so sure he could find all these contradictions in the Word. And he came back with two or three, and the professor applied the law of logic and contradiction to them, and there were no contradictions. Okay. As Calvin, John Calvin points out, a man's life cannot be ordered aright unless it is framed according to the Word of God. Number four, God's Word is absolute. It endures forever. It is altogether righteous. Whether in this culture or any other culture, this time or any other time, it is absolute. It endures forever. It does not shift on changing sands like the morals of, of, of man do. Okay, It stays the same. And number five, God's Word is abrasive. Oh, man, that doesn't sound like the other ones. This one sounds a little bit harder. Yeah, it says, by it his servant, is, his servant is warned. God's Word is what? Sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Okay? To follow Christ, a man must do what? Must hate his mother and father. Okay? And be devoted to him. Sometimes the Word of God and faith in Christ will separate families. Sometimes it will divide us from the things that we have loved before because we have to decide, am I going to follow God's Word? Am I going to follow the things of the world. The truth is before us. Sometimes this truth upsets us. It makes us mad. We want to throw it down and say, I'm not going to follow that. I can't believe that. But yet this is God's word. And if we do it, if we believe it, if we follow it, there is blessings that cannot be seen in this world outside of our obedience to his word. So that gives us the first introduction to the things that we are going to see in the next couple of weeks relative to the authority of the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you give us this Word. And as much as scholarship and history has tried to disprove it and debunk it and all these things, yet it stands. It stands for all time. There are plenty of people whose eyes are closed to this. They don't want to believe. They don't want to obey. And there are plenty of people, Lord, whose eyes have been opened and, and, and want to believe and have believed and want to obey. And they wrestle with some portions of Scripture. Like, how can this be true? Really, did, how, how do you deal with this creation? How do I balance creation and, and the things that science are telling me? How do I balance this flood narrative? How do I balance these miracles um, when, when, you know, science and other parts of the world say these things just don't happen. Virgins just don't have children. You don't feed 5,000 from a couple loaves and fish. How, how do we wrestle with these things? Lord, your word is true, and it is here for us. And you call us to conform our lives to it, that we might know what the joy that you have for us. And Lord, we trust that as we read and as we study and as we fill our minds with the things of your word, you will bring these things to our hearts and our minds, that we will come to believe and the things that we need to know, you will show us and we will cling to them. The things that we don't know will be left to wrestle with and we'll trust that on that day when we see you, if it's still important to us, you'll reveal it to us. So, Lord, fix these things in our minds. Prepare our hearts that we would...
be ready to dig in and understand this gracious gift you have given us in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh-oh.